Mm, oh, there it is. There we go. There's a mute button on that. You learn quick. Uh, so anyways, so much exciting stuff going on for Coastal this week. The Puerto Rico team just came back. That's awesome. Yeah. No, a lot of people from Gloucester got to go on that trip, which is fantastic. Uh, then we've got actually our third campus in Deer Park uh, with Pastor Joey is opening today, which is really exciting. Yeah, so that's fantastic. Uh, and then all the students are leaving for SWO tomorrow. So very exciting time for Coastal. And to sum all that up, we're going to preach on grief this morning. <laughs> so it's really amazing how we can make the calendar work like that. You know, it, it takes a lot of talent and skill. Um, but yeah, so this, so this morning, what we're going to be doing, we're going to continue uh, through 2 Corinthians as we've been going through this summer. This morning, where we're going to be is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And what Paul is doing here, we're going to jump right into it. What Paul is doing here is he's kind of shifting gears a little bit, and we're coming into kind of like a family talk, if you will. And so there's a lot of context we need to understand if we're going to grasp what we're going to read this morning. So just think of the next minute of like a TV show, like previously on Cruciformed, right? Okay. That's kind of where we're at right now. And so I'm going to, we're going to understand where Paul's at in his relationship with the Corinthians. So basically how all of this started is Paul comes to Corinth. He sets up this church. The church is healthy. Uh, it's doing well. It's on his way to glorifying Christ in the community. And he leaves to continue his mission, all right? So while he's going out on mission still, he gets word that things aren't going great, right, for the Corinthians. And so what Paul does is he writes a letter. He says, hey, guys, this is how we're going to get back on track to pursuing the Lord in the church. And that's what we would call 1 Corinthians, right? And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians. They get it. He's curious how it's received. And so he sends Timothy over to the Corinthians to see how things are going, right? First and second Timothy, that ringing a bell, same guy, right? Um, and so Timothy goes over, he checks it out, comes back to Paul, he says, Paul, not going great, all right? You need to come back and check things out, okay? Paul comes back to the Corinthians. It's a big boo fest. Nobody likes Paul. They don't want to hear what he has to say because their mind and their hearts have been deceived by these false teachers and what we've talked about, super apostles, right? So Paul, while he's kind of being booed out of the church, right, he leaves humbly. He says, okay, I'm going to bow out. I'm going to leave humbly. And then what he does from there is he writes this letter that we don't actually have in the Bible. It's called the severe letter, okay? And, and we'll reference it this morning. So in this letter, he doesn't pull any punches, okay? He's just calling it how he sees it. He's like, this is what needs to change. This is how you guys need to repent. This is what needs to be different. And so while Paul is still on mission, he sent the severe letter to the Corinthians. He sends Titus over to go see how that letter was received, okay? And so with all that crazy, messy drama, this is where we're picking up, okay? Sound good, right? And so this is where we're picking up. I know that sounds like a lot, and I, and I want to be clear here. A lot of times when we read the Bible, as we, as we read through it, we get this bird's eye view. But to give us some more context, this is about the relationship of about five years of back and forth, right? And we're like, whoa, that is a long, messy relationship. But I'm willing to bet that some of us have long, messy relationships, right? Yeah, uh, you can't point to your wife. That doesn't count. Um, and so, so anyways, right, some of us have got something to learn from this word today, and hopefully all of us will walk away impacted. Uh, and so with that being said, let me go ahead and pray for us in this morning what we're going to go through. 
Lord, thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for this time in Coastal, Lord, where we're launching a, a third campus. We've been able to send out mission trips, Lord. The students are going to go spend a week alone with you, Lord. How exciting that is right now in the life of Coastal, Father. Uh, but I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the fact that your word tackles the tough areas of our life, Father. I pray this morning that everything that's going on outside of this room, Lord, home life, relationships, work, the to-do list, that they would all take a back seat, that you would be the focus of our hearts. Spirit, that you would fill us up so that we would see your truth for what it is, that you would illuminate your word to us so that we can take it and grasp it and apply it to our life, that we would know more about you and so we'd be more in love with who you are. We pray that you would bless this time. It's your son's name we pray, amen. So this big topic that we're gonna get after today, all right, there's one major theme I want us to take away. And this theme, right, is, is the word reconciliation. A lot of times we hear this word thrown around in church life, we hear it thrown around in small groups, and we, and we don't always necessarily put our thumb on what reconciliation is. So with our umbrella theme being reconciliation, here's what I want us to know, all right? This is your first fill in the blank. Reconciliation, right, is the removal of hostility and the restoration of fellowship between two parties. You see, reconciliation, it takes time and it takes action, right? And that's what we're gonna learn about today. That's what we're gonna see and take home with us today. Because we have sometimes wronged people. Sometimes we've been the one wronged or taken advantage of. And all of us have relationships, whether it's with God, our community, or ourselves that need to be reconciled. So that's what I want us to focus on this morning. And with that being said, let's read the first couple of verses. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Paul starts by saying this. He says, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. So to see this here and to understand reconciliation, let's look at the very beginning, right? Paul in verse two, what's he say? He says, scoot over, right? Hey, if this is gonna work, you gotta make some room, right? Because what we need to see here is that we need to put effort into reconciliation. We have to make room for us to restore relationships with people. Because a lot of times, too often, we think of our life as a TV show, right? And a lot of times, when there needs to be reconciliation in a TV show, two people come together, they're like, I'm so sorry, right? They hug it out, there's soft background music playing, the camera zooms out, it's all good, right? Then the, the series can move forward. A lot of times in our life, though, when we think of how things work out, somebody finally comes up and says, hey, man, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we go, oh, don't worry about it, because I'm going to get you back, right? You know? And that's how we kind of think about it sometimes, right, when it comes to reconciliation. And so what I want to emphasize, right, is that what Paul is talking about here is that it takes effort. We have to work. We have to make room in order for us to have reconciliation. You see, I have to make room for my wife to live in the same bedroom as me. And what I mean by that is that without any effort of my own, dirty clothes will start to pile up in my room, right? Without any effort of myself, towels somehow seem to find their way strewn across the room. And so in the same way, when we are in a hurt relationship, right? Without any effort, stubbornness will build up in our heart. Without any effort, bitterness will start to find its way into our relationship. 
And sin will start to pile up so that we find false relief from seeking reconciliation. So that we'll find false relief from things like substance abuse, lust, self-harm. All these things will come into our lives if we make no effort because we're broken, right? That's what will happen when we don't make room. But when I fold the clothes and I put away the towels, all of a sudden there's room for my wife to live in the bedroom with me, right? And in the same way, when I make an effort for, re- for reconciliation, there starts to be space for that person. Starts to be space for that hurt relationship to grow. And so reconciliation takes effort. So the question is, what type of effort does it take, right? Well, Paul tells us right here, he says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Okay, well, I don't know if I'm on board with dying together, Paul, all right? We're not really sure if we still like you, right? So bold move, right? And so what is Paul saying here when he says that we are supposed to die together so that we can live together? He's referencing Jesus' teaching, right? In Matthew 16, 24, what we read from the teaching of Jesus, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Here, Paul is giving the practical implication. Paul is saying, if we're going to live together, then we have to be willing to die to ourselves. Because that natural response of me being prideful, that natural response of me putting up that wall so you don't hurt me again, that's gotta die if we're going to live together. That part has to step aside. It's not going to work. You see, and so that effort that we have to have is effort takes dying to yourself so you can live with others. We have got to die to ourselves to live in a Christ-like manner together. And so I want want us to, to take that and emphasize that. You see, he goes on to say that when we do die together, this is what happens in verse four. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in, our, in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Well, that's a weird way to describe being afflicted, right? <laughs> Most of the time you just say, man, I'm feeling really joyful today. I'm miserable, right? So what's he talking about? What's he building up to? Well, he tells us right here. Starting in verse five, he says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more, right? So what's happening here? What is Paul giving us insight into? Well, remember I said that Paul was on mission, right? He's doing mission while he writes to the Corinthians. Well, Paul, what he's doing right here, he's in Macedonia. He's trying to proclaim the gospel of Macedonia because there's room for him there to preach the news of Jesus. But here's what he says. He says, when I got to Macedonia, right, I was fighting without. He doesn't mean he's fighting without a sword or he like forgot something. He means he's fighting outwardly, if that makes sense. So he's, he's preaching and people are attacking him for preaching. And then he's also fearful within, right? Well, what is that fear within? I think that fear within is he's thinking how his letter went with the Corinthians. And some of us know what this is like, right? Because we have had these moments, right, where we're trying to be somewhere, but emotionally, mentally, we're distracted. As a high schooler, it's telling your crush how you really feel about him, right? 
As an adult, it's telling your boss how you actually feel about your job, <laughs> right? Both situations make you stress out about it afterwards, right? You replay the conversation. You think about how it could be misinterpreted. How are they thinking about it? How's the relationship gonna move forward? And so we see here, right, that Paul is actually consumed with the letter that he wrote. He's, he's thinking about it. And so now he's revealing how the letter actually went, right? He says that we were brought comfort within the midst of fighting without and being fearful within. I wanna draw a parallel here because I think we see a really strong parallel in these verses. In 2 Corinthians, you might remember Pastor David preached on this, chapter one, right? This is what it says in the opening of Paul's letter. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Whoo, that's a lot of comfort, right? Here's what we see here. Paul, in the midst of fighting without and fearful within, is also comforted by God. Paul is drawing a parallel. What I want to challenge us in this next section is do you see God this morning as the God of all comfort? Is that a truth in your life? Because Paul does. Paul says that I was fighting without externally in Macedonia, internally from my letter to the Corinthians, and God comforts us in all our afflictions. Paul says that God comforts those who are in affliction. He says, Titus brought us comfort when we were in despair. And then he wraps up by saying, we ourselves are comforted by God. And he says, God's community in Corinth brought Titus comfort, which brought us comfort. You see, this is comfort on comfort on comfort on comfort, right? It's complicated. It's messy. But God is able to work in that because we are not. Does that make sense? God is able to bring comfort when we are stuck. And so do you see God as a God of all comfort? This morning, I wanna ask you, are you fighting outwardly and fearful within? As you sit here this morning, as we worshiped, as you listened to this message, are you fighting a fear within? Is your mind distracted about something that's going on at work? Is your heart wrapped up in a marriage that needs God to get involved? Where are you at this morning? Because many of us live this lifestyle where we feel like all we're doing is fighting outwardly. We feel like all we're doing is dealing with our heart within and just trying to make it through every single day. And my question is, have you gone to God for comfort? Have you asked God to step into that relationship? Are you seeking any reconciliation in this matter? Because God is a God who is so wise and able to use so many things that he can use a broken church for a faithful messenger, for a weary missionary to bring comfort. And he did it all over the span of five years. So can he do that in your life? Can he be the God of comfort in your life? Because when we do that, when we have that, we will rejoice still more. We will have zeal. We will have comfort. 
Because as we seek reconciliation, what I want to ask you is this. Why are you seeking it? Are you seeking it because your image was hurt? Are you seeking it because your pride was broken and you need to build it back up? Or are you seeking it out because we're not supposed to live in anger with another brother and sister in Christ? We're not supposed to let the sun go down on that, as it says in Ephesians 4. Are you living that out? Because it says in Matthew 5 that before I come to God and worship, I have to go get things right with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Which one is your motivation? You or God? Because we've got to get that straight this morning. We've got to answer that question for ourselves. God is a God of all comfort. He doesn't want you to live constantly fighting without and fearful within. He wants you to rejoice. And now, in contrast to that comfort and how it came, we're going to see something very odd in verses 8 through 10. It says this, For even, oh, here we go. I want to do this too. I want you guys to count how many times Paul makes people grieve. All right? For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that while the letter grieved you, though only for a little while, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, as because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffer no loss through it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief leads to death. Ooh, that's a lot of grief. Why are we listening to you again? Right? Seven times in two verses. That's the contrast of God. God's comfort comes from God's grief. Whew. Good grief, Charlie Brown. That's what I got to say to that. See, my favorite Christmas movie actually is Charlie Brown. Christmas, right? And in that story, Charlie Brown messes everything up, right? Charlie Brown wants to be a part of the Christmas play. He's got to get a Christmas tree. He wants to understand the meaning of Christmas and he wants to make friends. All throughout the movie, he does none of it, right? He keeps missing the mark. And so what happens, right, is he ends up getting kicked out of the Christmas play and he's grieved by that loss, right? But sure enough, at the end of the movie, what happens? They all come together around the Christmas tree, right? And they sing a song and the camera zooms out and the soft music plays and everything's fine, right? Because that's how TV works. But you see, this movie wouldn't be worth much of anything if it was just kids singing around a a tree for 30 minutes, right? But because we watch Charlie Brown go through this grief, we appreciate the rejoicing at the end so much more. And so a lot of times, the reason why we relate to that so well is because that's our life sometimes, right? We try to figure it out, we miss the mark, and we hit grief, right? Well, it's an odd thing for a pastor to say that I made you grieve, Man, that was a great sermon. Everybody left depressed, right? Nobody says that. That's an odd thing to say. But you see, a surgeon doesn't rejoice when they're cutting somebody open. That would make them crazy, right? A surgeon rejoices. They get happy because they know that incision is gonna lead to their healing. And the same way Paul isn't rejoicing because he made them grieve, he's rejoicing because it's leading them towards repentance. That is the goal of grief, that godly grief would produce repentance, And so what's he say here? He says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, 
whereas worldly grief produces death. I want to park here for, for a couple minutes because this is the linchpin of chapter 7. For us to really understand what Paul is getting at here, we have got to understand this verse and the difference between worldly grief and godly grief because in the beginning they can feel very similar, right? In order to do that this morning, I want to look at two characters that hopefully we're all familiar with, one being Judas and the other being Peter. So this is not a rhetorical question. What are some things you guys know about Judas? Betrayer. Betrayer. Ugh, gross, right? Anything else? He's a money grabber. Yeah, he was, man. Not a very impressive resume between those two, right? How about for uh, the disciple Peter? Peter, one of the 12. What do you know about Peter? Stuck his foot in his mouth? Yeah, he sure did talk a lot. Yeah, that's right. Anything else? He talked a lot. I guess that's all we know. Well, we're going to learn something else today too, huh? Well, what I want to tell you guys, what I want to challenge you guys with is that both Peter and Judas were disciples of Jesus. They were one of the 12. What that means is they saw Jesus perform miracles. They saw Jesus teach the truth about himself. They too went out and performed miracles and they too went out and told people about Jesus being the Messiah. What both of them share in common is that they have both denied their relationship with their Savior. And we see that in Luke chapter 22. This is with Judas to begin with. It says, The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, being Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of twelve. He went away and confirmed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. Peter, you money grubber, right? He's denying his relationship with Jesus. Now let's pick up with Peter in verse 54 of the same chapter. Then they seized Jesus, led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following Jesus at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looked closely at him and said, this man was also with Jesus. But he denied it, saying, women, I don't know him. And a little while later, someone else came to him and said, you're one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, certainly this man was, was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Both Peter and Judas denied their relationship with their Savior. Both of them made the wrong decision. There have been times for us where we have made a statement that has denied our relationship with our Savior. We're caught in grief. Both of them experiencing grief, but the question is, how do we deal with it, right? And so first what I want to look at is worldly grief. I want to take a look at worldly grief because worldly grief will lead us to three responses. And we have an image up here that will show us that. You see, worldly sorrow will cause us to three responses. Either it will cause us to water down our sin, right? That's where we talked about, hey, so sorry. Ah, it's okay. Don't sweat it, right? No big deal. Quick, I'm sorry. A person who wallows in their sin saying, oh, I'm never going to be good enough to go to church again. I'm the worst, right? I'm the worst sinner. And then there are the people who try to get rid of it saying, oh, man, I can't believe I sinned. I, you know what? I've got to read my Bible for an hour. I'm going to sign up for every small group. I'm a volunteer for everything, so I'll never sin again, right? So those are the three different types of responses. You see, but the issue with those responses is that they have three different consequences. The first one is that when we have worldly grief, we try to make up for it ourselves. And so what we do in doing that is we separate ourselves from God. We say, God, I don't need you because what I can do now is make up for my own sin, right? 
And so what happens? That sin, that guilt, and that shame lead to covering, to hiding it with our good deeds. The second thing that happens is that it separates us from others, right? Oh man, I've sinned. Nobody can know what I've done. So I'm just gonna hide and lock myself in my room and never come out again, right? So what happens there is we don't rely on community to help us get through our sin. And so we separate ourselves. We isolate ourselves. The last thing that we do is that we actually separate ourselves from ourselves, right? We're fearful within. We're ashamed. We're miserable about what we've done. And so what we do is we try to say, yeah, I'll get him next time. It's not a big deal. This, this feeling of being miserable will go away. And you see, Judas falls into these three categories because he's grieved, right? We're gonna see that, that Judas is grieved, but he deals with it in the wrong way. And so in Matthew 27, it says this. It says, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Good job, Judas and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the, the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, he went, and he hanged himself. Man. Judas's grief led to his death, just like we read about. That worldly grief led to his death. Why? Because Judas didn't go to anybody that he had wronged. He just went to the people who he made the deal with. A lot of us do that when we're grieved in a broken relationship. All we do is go talk to everybody else about it, right? But we never go to God about it, and we never go to the person we actually wronged about it. But we'll talk about it with anybody else, just not those two. That's what worldly sorrow does. It drives us away from God and away from our community. And in the end, it will cost us our lives. We'll be immobilized by sorrow. We'll be isolated from community. We'll feel distant from God. And that is not the goal of this grief. Counting ourselves out from being in small groups, saying that we're not good enough to serve, saying because we have some sort of past history, so therefore we can't move forward. That's not how God wants to use your past. That's not how God wants to, wants to use you. And so what's the biggest difference is that worldly grief stops with sorrow. That's not the ultimate goal. Death is not the ultimate goal. However, godly grief leads to repentance and this repentance leads to salvation. And you see, this godly grief takes us back to God, takes us back to our community. And we're gonna see that right here. We've got an image that I wanna show you guys real quick for what godly grief results in. Right? And so when we sin and we have a godly grief over our brokenness, what happens? We look at ourselves, we realize we're broken, we stop, we admit our sin to God, we go to our community and say, I need help getting through my sin, I need your forgiveness, and because of that, it actually leads us towards God and toward our community, and so now we have a direction that we're moving in. And so what I want us to see here is that Peter also has grief, but he deals with it differently. It says this about Peter. It says, while he was still speaking, denying Jesus, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter's heart was consumed with grief. But the difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter knows that he cannot make up for this sin. 
He knows that there's nothing to repay. And so what happens? What happens to Peter? We see in John 21. Man, I can only think about how awkward this conversation was. Jesus comes back and Peter goes, oh, you're here, right? About that last conversation. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, and check this part out right here, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was what? Grieved. It's all coming together, right? See, I love it when it works like this. He was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Peter's grief led to a lifelong following of Jesus Christ. Peter's grief led to his salvation because Peter knew he could not make up for his wrongdoing. And so what Peter did is he reconciled to God, he reconciled to Christ, he reconciled to the people that he had wronged, all through the person of Jesus Christ by saying, Lord, you know I love you more than all of this. So therefore, Peter gets to pick up his calling and move forward. One took his life, the other found it. Which one will you be? Which one will you be this morning? That's what you have to ask yourself because I can't answer that for you. Will your grief lead to your death? Will it trap you in isolation? Is it already trapping you in isolation? Or will it lead to your salvation so that today when you go home or even right here and right now, you say, Lord, I love you more than my sorrow. I love you more than my grief. I wanna be close to you. I wanna be in community. Will you save me because of your works on the cross? Because the fact that you died, you took sin, you took death in that grave, and three days later you rose. You now have life so that I can have life in you, no longer crippled by my sorrow and death, but now free to follow you. Which one will you say this morning? Which one will it be? You see, because if we let godly grief lead to repentance and lead to salvation, then the oddest thing will happen. You'll produce fruit. You will have fruit from godly grief. Because it says this in verses 11 through 13. It says, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. And therefore we are comforted. There is a fruit that comes from godly grief because some of us are so drowned in our, in our broken, sorrowful grief and relationships that we forget what it's like to feel zeal. Some of us have lost that understanding of what it is to have a passion for godly relationships. You see, because what's happening here is Paul is saying everything you were before is now different now that you've given this to God. Where you had a lack of fear for God is now met with fear. Your attempt to separate yourself from me is now met with a longing to be with me. Your carelessness of worship is replaced with a zeal and your acceptance of habitual sin is now met with a desire to kill that sin. 
How many of us this morning wish we could describe our relationship with God with those things? How many of us want to get rid of our apathy? You've got to have a godly grief about it. If you want to get rid of it, you have got to know that God is a God of comfort, that he died for you to be near God. And so now you can say, God, help me make room in my heart. Help me know that I love you. Help me know that I have a heart for you and that you desire to use my past to bring rejoicing because that's how God desires to use your past, to make you stronger, to make you realize how great God is. I wanna finish with this. It says this in Jeremiah 17. I think this ties in well to what we've read about today. It says this in verse five, "'Cursed is the man who trusts in man "'to make flesh his strength, "'whose heart has turned away from the Lord. "'He is like a shrub in the desert "'and shall not see good come. "'He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness "'in an uninhabited salt land. "'But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, "'whose trust is in the Lord. "'He is like a tree planted by water "'that sends out its roots by the stream.'" And does not fear when heat comes, for it leaves, its leaves remain green. And he is not anxious in the year of drought, for he does not cease to bear fruit. I have one last image I want to show you guys this morning. And it looks like this. All of us, I'm going to explain this to you. All of us, see the sun right there? All of us encounter heat. The sun brings heat, right? It can be at work. It can be at home. It can be in your relationships, okay? This heat shines on all of us. There's no way to get out of it. But what we do with the heat is completely up to us, right? Because when we hit heat and we choose to respond with what's called a bad root there, see that tree that would be on your right? When we respond with a bad root, that's when we say, here's what I believe, here's what I deserve in this response, here's what I should get. And we respond with a, with a, with a bad root and so we produce thorns, that's our bad fruit. And so what we reap is a messier relationship, right? Y'all ever gone back into a messy relationship and say, I'm going to fix it this time. I, I know exactly what I'm going to say. It all spills out and you go, oh, I made it worse, right? It's way worse than it was before. That's what happens when we respond with a bad root, when we respond with our own understanding, is we reap the consequences. The church of Corinth, they responded with their own root. And what'd they reap? Five years worth of drama, am I right? Now, on the other hand, we have Paul. Paul is rooted in the Lord. And fortunately, he's already done a lot of ministry. And, and when he ministers to the Galatians in 6.9, he says, I'm not gonna get weary of doing good because in due time, I'm gonna reap some fruit. So I'm in it. So as he interacts with the heat of the sin of the church of Corinth, what's he do? He finds good root in the cross of Jesus Christ and his redeemer. And he gives the situation to God so that he produces a good fruit. And when it's time to reap, we reap this story right here 2000 years later about a church that has been restored. Imagine your kids saying, I remember how my dad treated my mom and that makes me wanna be the best man I can be for my family. Imagine your coworker saying, man, I saw how you dealt with your boss. That makes me want to work with honesty and integrity. Why do you work like that? Because of Jesus, that's good fruit. Do we ever stop and think what would happen if Paul gave up on this church? Five years, I'd probably give up. That's a long time to not see eye to eye. There would be no rejoicing in the, in the redeeming message of Jesus Christ. We would lose out on that completely. So this morning, what is your root? 
Are you a root that's like Judas and you're trying to find your own way out? Are you a root that's like Peter and you go to Jesus and say, Lord, I love you more than my grief. Please lead me to salvation. Which way will you be? Because when we do this, when we produce this type of fruit, here's, what I, here's the last thing I want to see, is that reconciliation will restore the local church. When all of us take reconciliation seriously, it restores the local church. Because Paul finishes by saying this, besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Whatever boasts I made in him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Church, this morning I have a challenge for you. I have a question for you. Do you want to be a church that refreshes the people who walk in here? Do you want to be a church that refreshes the people who walk in here? Because if we're going to be that, we've got to see our sorrow, our brokenness, and our grief, and we've got to take it seriously. Because when you try to hide it and cover it, people leave burned. People leave broken and they leave hurt. We can't do that. That's not what this calls for in Scripture. Let's be a church that refreshes. Let's be a church that can boast and our congregation and say, man, we've got Pastor David and Nate and Janelle and they love Jesus so much. You've got to come check it out. You've got to come see it. Do we want to be a church where we boast about the presence of God in our times of worship? If we do, we've got to take this seriously. We've got to rejoice. We've got to see that our grief will not lead to our death, but it will lead to our salvation. So my challenge today is that if you are living with godly grief, you will not let it trap you in isolation. You will not let it lead to your death, but that you will let it take you to God and to your community so that you'll be restored and that you will rejoice in the works of Jesus Christ. My encouragement is that if you are feeling alone, you have a God who is a God of all comfort. He wants to comfort you this very morning. So let him. Let him bring you comfort by making room. And my hope is that we will take this message outside of these walls and these relationships that need to be reconciled, we'll do so. You're not dead yet, so do something about it, right? That is my hope for you, is that you will realize that Jesus is great enough to restore your relationships. And that when you let him restore your relationships, you will come in here and you will worship with zeal. You will come in here and you will have a passion to be with the community that God has placed you with and that you will worship God with a new heart and a new excitement than you did before. That is the power of the message of reconciliation, which is bought by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time this morning to get to see that you don't desire for us to live our relationships in grief, Lord. You don't desire to leave us in sorrow, but you work through our complex relationships, our, our messy history, Lord, our past, so that you can restore them. So Father, I pray this morning that you would give us effort, that you would give us a mind and a heart to work so that we're no longer distracted by our fears, we're no longer fighting outwardly, but that we would be pursuing you in everything that we do. 
Lord, I pray that as we face the heat this week, that we would be like a tree that's planted next to a stream, that we would produce fruit even in this difficult time, Lord. Father, I pray this morning that you will draw us closer to you, closer to your community, and that you will put us at peace with ourselves. So Father, I thank you that you've reconciled us to yourself through your blood. I pray that you will bless the things